Welcome back to the Dispatch Podcast, the official podcast of Battle Franklin Trust. I'm your host, Joseph Ricky, and this is... Uh, we're entering into a new phase. If you've noticed, we've been on a hiatus for the better part of the fall and a little bit of the summer. You can blame that on me. You can also blame that on the fact that the Battle of Franklin Trust has been incredibly busy over the last few months. And so when was there time to record episodes? In the wee small hours of the morning and the late hours of the evening, there was no time in between. So naturally, the podcast kind of fell off a little bit in terms of what we could do, how we had the time to do it. And there also has been a matter of rebranding. Now, naturally, we were 10 and 20, and then we were the dispatch. So now you're thinking, oh, my gosh, how can they come up with something else? Well, the best thing in the world is constant evolution and change. It's what makes all of this possible. We'll have two very new features to the podcast. So what you're going to have, what this episode is, is called Tour Guide Talk. Uh, Bill Clark and David Stumpfel will be joining uh, the dispatch team to create some content here for you have discussions just about stuff that we talk about all the time as guides what it is what it's like to sit here and talk about people that we haven't had a voice for for 150 years and then at the same time we're going to have another series of podcasts coming out called chalkboard history of which you'll find the video component to on our youtube channel the battle franklin trust there on youtube We'll also be throwing out some bonus episodes here and there, primary accounts, individual stories, things of that nature. But I think it's important for us to know that the dispatch is back, and I think maybe better than ever. I, I don't. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, Bill, welcome to the show. Unfortunately, David is traveling. Actually, no. Fortunately, David's traveling. Yes, he he's in India. He's having the time of his life. I believe he got there before all the uh, planes got grounded. So I think he oh, left yeah, just right. by the skin of his teeth. So I mean. Isn't that just the sheer David Stumpful luck to just be walking through the <laughs> it airport? Absolutely is. Get on the plane, take off, and then all of the other planes are grounded. Looking around, oh, there's not a single plane in the sky except us. Yep, that is that is just perfect for David. <laughs> it is poetic justice. It is fantastic. And if you've ever met David, or if you've never met David, just know that everything we've said so far entirely accurate. David will be joining us. His kind of background, more political, more social. I think. Bill, what are you going to bring to the show? Uh, I think we're going to find out. I think we're, we're. I think that's the best way. We're just going to find out. We're going to throw darts it. at the wall, right? Yep, just throwing darts, see where they land. I so. I like that. Um, naturally, I think people that have listened to the show, you'll have heard me talk about politics. You'll have heard me talk about military aspects of the war, uh, some of the cultural and social shifts. And while we're going to talk about serious subjects, I think. Sometimes history podcasts have a tendency to get boring because it's Jacob Cox was born on October the 28th in 1928. And he was a really nice guy and he was a good general. And then you fall asleep and you're on the middle of the interstate. You're getting ready to try and make that switch from 65 to 440 and you just drive off the off ramp because yep. you've fallen asleep at the wheel again. Or you're like me and you're like, you know what? This is just incredibly boring. I'm going to go back to my death metal. I'm going to put on some tomb mold. Yeah. So. Which, I don't. I don't know if you can put some tomb mold on right now. Over I could. me, a little bit of silence with just some tomb mold going. Sure. Just so people know a little bit about my personality. I will have to find a <laughs> clean version, <laughs> radio appropriate. <laughs> So, Bill, you've been at the Battle of Franklin Trust, what, for? Uh, February is going to be my three-year anniversary with the Battle of Franklin Trust. Three years. So. Three years. And 
good three years. Yeah, good three years started as a uh, just tour guide, given tours at Carnton and Carter House, and then have worked my way up to director of guest engagement. So I handle everything from online tickets to tours to the gift shop to social media to the website. So if you are listening to this podcast, we're going to be talking about Jacob Cox. We have Citizen General, which is a biography. <laughs> perfect time um, to plug a book. Yes, perfect time by <laughs> Jacob. It is written by Eugene Schmiel about the life of Jacob Cox. So after you listen to this podcast, order that book. There's going to be a discount code. It's going to be Dispatch. And you're going to get $2 shipping if you're interested in picking up that book. We also have his memoirs, too. Yes. Uh, Jacob Cox, The Monograph from the Battle of Franklin Trust, mm-hmm. which is his account of the Battle of Franklin from his mind to the paper. It is his entire description of the battle, which is a fantastic read if you're a battle geek who wants to know everything there is to know. When he said that, he was talking directly to me, who has two copies of it, one that's annotated and the other one that just is a perfectly pure blank clean slate. Of course you do. Why am I not surprised? (laughs) (laughs) Would it be any shock that I have a picture of Jacob Cox and a first edition of the monograph sitting next to each other on a desk at home? No, not at all. Actually, our uh, our co-worker Braxy, who does all of the... all the YouTube videos. So if you've ever seen anything that Battle of Franklin Trust, the the magazine, she puts that together. She does all the videos. She's got a giant portrait of Jacob Cox hanging in her office. So then so. there must be some natural gravitation towards Jacob Cox, aside from the fact that he's just another person that we talk here. Because if that's the case, well, I mean, I have a little statuette of a little bust of John Bell Hood on my desk, and I've got a little bust of John Schofield at home. I would like to mention that I share an office with Joseph and his desk is essentially full of Civil War. Uh, and Batman. Civil War and Batman uh, figures where mine is just full of clone troopers from Star Wars. So, The 10-year-old uh, you is very happy. Yes, the, we, we have an incredibly nerdy office. The 10-year-old me is very happy too. <laughs> you mean to tell me that you've got Superman next to... Uh, Jacob Cox and, and George Wagner and Emerson Optic. My God. Yeah, um, and you know, I think our I think our mutual love for Star Wars makes sense because we also love the Civil War, and Star Wars is just a galactic civil war. So they just go hand in hand. If you heard that, listener, we just gave context to the 1970s greatest popular culture sensation, Star Wars. You're welcome. And we might just do a Star Wars Civil War podcast episode connecting the two. Once David gets back, absolutely. <laughs> so what is it about Jacob Cox then? Because if so many people you know, have his picture up in the office, have yep. a monograph, have, the, have his picture with the monograph, talk about him on tour at Carter House, it seems like at nauseum sometimes. Uh, you know, the joke's been made. Nobody likes to talk about Jacob Cox as much as the two of us. Yep. So what, what is it about Jacob Cox? You know, I think... What I like to tell people is he's very much a renaissance man, where he's not just a general, but he wore so many different hats. So he is, he's a, he's a theologian, he went to school to be a minister, Mm -hmm. he is a abolitionist, he ends up being a general, he ends up being the secretary of the interior during the Grant administration, there's talks of him running for president, he becomes a scientist uh, with like microbiology stuff it, it's too My, microscopy yeah microscopy it's, it's too it's too intelligent for me to it's, understand it's a big word it is it is a very big word i like three syllable words at best all all that is really is just understanding how microscopes work which is insane like how do you just come now having used microscopes in like high school and yeah. to do dissections and look at amoebas and stuff i i had no 
God, that probably would have made it a lot more interesting to know the Civil War general kind of pioneered the study of that. I think you're the only one that would that would make it more interesting. I think everybody else would just be like, oh, okay, and move on. I, I don't know. It feels like, you know, looking through something that he figured out. You know, it's not like he invented the yeah. microscope, but he figured out how to use it for scientific study and uh, came up with a bunch of the terminology for it. I don't know. I guess maybe I would have appreciated it more knowing that it had that because it was, to me, it was just science yeah so to have that connection and that's sometimes all you have to do is make a connection i think jacob cox is one of those people that helps guests helps us identify with somebody because he like you said he's done everything yeah he's a theologian so he's deeply deeply religious pious one might even say i I don't know if it's the same scale as a guy like Oliver Otis Howard, the Christian general, like they mm-hmm. call him, or on the other side, a, sometimes a religious extremist like Stonewall Jackson. Yeah. I think, I think really Cox is just kind of rides the middle. He's very extraordinarily ordinary person. Yeah, and I think that's part of what makes him so special, especially when the Battle of Franklin is full of these almost bigger than life characters. He's an everyday guy. He's the everyman. <laughs> But no, I, okay, all right. So he's an everyday guy. He's ordinary. He is still, though, and I think that's one of the things, too, is when I was researching for the book, when I was researching just on the battle in general, one of the things that became so clearly apparent to me was that the focus had always been on those bigger and larger-than-life people. It had always been on the John Bell Hoods of the world. Oh, he was this awful person. Oh, he was this great general. Uh, And he was this awful, terrible general who didn't know what he was doing. And it was Nathan Bedford Forrest, the great cavalier, but pay no mind to the whole clan thing, slave trader thing before the war. Um, No, we we just look over that. uh, Just just push that aside. Put that under the rug. Put that under the the hood. Oh, that was good. Thank you. That was very good. And then, and then there's the Claiborne. And, of course, the great argument behind Claiborne is he's the Stonewall of the West, the great division commander. And as somebody that gives battlefield tours and as somebody that has looked at this battle from so many different angles, there comes a time some days where I just don't want to talk about Patrick Claiborne. Because I'm like, nodding along in agreement because I get it. We get it. He, We get it. He should have commanded the army. Well, no, he shouldn't have. But what about... What about this fact? Because people always like to say, well, you know, John Bell Hood didn't stand a chance. He, he slaughtered his army. But what if what if John Schofield and Jacob Cox and David Stanley and Nathan Kimball and George Wagner were just good enough to beat the Army of Tennessee here at Franklin? Mm-hmm. And they were not the bigger-than-life men. I think Yeah, they're not of- the Justice League. Outside of our circle, you're not going to talk about John Schofield. Yeah. He's a he's a real unknown. Super giant nerds might go, oh, yeah, you know, John Schofield, he picks Hawaii in 1876 mm-hmm. as the Pacific outpost. But nobody talks about him as a great general of the Civil War. Yeah, in because the same way that, that You may talk about Nathan Kimball maybe as a joke to say he's the only Union general to beat Jackson and Lee in the Eastern Theater and then beat everybody else out here. But... Do you really get into the weeds and talk about a guy like Jacob Cox all that often? No. And I think another one of the cool things about Jacob Cox, especially for me, because I like to really connect visitors to our site. It's like when you find out someone's from 
Mississippi can connect them to, uh, let's say, Walthall. Yeah. Cool. I, I had to nod along to to, <laughs> to make sure I was Walthall right. Walthall is from Mississippi. Perfect. Right. Got yeah. that. Nailed it. Or any of the any of the Mississippians that are buried in the cemetery. Four hundred and twenty-four yes. of them. Yep. You know, largest section in the whole cemetery. There's a way to connect it, but. Jacob and then Cox is great for that too. Yeah, because we get a lot of international travelers mm-hmm. and a lot of them are from our neighbors up north being Canada and they come and they don't expect the United States is top hat. What? The top hat of the United States. Oh, I get what you mean now. I thought you were saying America's the top hat. I was like, no, no, Canada's above us. No, I, I do know geography. Okay. I'm glad. I'm glad. Uh, I had one lady from England who yelled at me and asked if I'd ever looked at a map. So uh, I don't think I know geography. The answer was no. No, I have not. (laughs) I have not. But we see a lot of Canadian visitation. And uh, it's fun to connect them with a Civil War soldier who's in the Battle of Franklin, who we talk about all the time. And that is Jacob Cox, because he is born in Montreal, Canada. So there is a very small connection. He doesn't spend much time there. His parents are fur traders, I believe. But they're they're Americans. They, they just are. happen to be in Canada while yep. he's born. So I guess he has dual citizenship before it was cool. <laughs> <laughs> the OG dual citizen. <laughs> but then that also comes up with there's some debate when he does end up later in life. Uh, there's talks of him running for president. It's, what do we do? He's born in Canada. How does this fit in with Is that? Is he naturalized? So, Is he not a citizen? Is he a citizen? How yeah. do you work around it? And I think today you would look at it and go, well, you know, he was in the army, and so that automatically made him a citizen. Like that's at least today's policy. Come to the United States, you join the military. Citizenship. Yeah. I think in what is it? Eighteen? Is it seventy-two? I'm not going to pretend like I know. So it would be Grant's second term. He wins in sixty-eight. So yeah, seventy-two. Okay. When they proposed to run Cox, they're like, well. We can't figure it out, so let's find somebody else. <laughs> yeah, and you know, I, I think it is also interesting that he runs as a as a liberal Republican because during Andrew Johnson's administration, Cox kind of falls in line with a lot of Johnson's Reconstruction views, yeah. which is interesting because he is an abolitionist, but he doesn't believe in black suffrage in the South, but he does believe in it in Ohio. So you see mm-hmm. how he's a complicated character. So he's complex. He does everything. So a little bit about him before the war. You know, he's what he's born in twenty eight. Yep, October of twenty eight. And then he goes to school for becoming a minister. He goes to a seminary, we presume, right? Uh, and then he becomes a professor. Then he's a theologian. Then an abolitionist. And then he's a congressman from Ohio in the state house or in yeah, he's in the state, state. house. Right? So then the war comes along, 1861, secession comes in 60, and the nation's beginning to fracture. Lincoln puts out the call for volunteers. I've always thought that the title of Gene's book, Citizen General, is so great because Jacob Cox is the perfect volunteer soldier. Yes. And there's so many. And that's one of the things that, what's the great strength of the Union war effort throughout is this consistency of leadership yeah i know in the beginning you try a guy like Irvin mcdowell at bull run doesn't work you takes you a while to get your feet you find a guy like Meade. you find a a guy like grant you find a guy like sherman they're all academy grads but then there's the volunteer officer corps that really emerges and you get guys like 
Nathan no. Bedford Force. No. John Blackjack Logan. <laughs> John Logan is a politician. He's a newspaper man. He becomes one of the best generals in the entire American Civil War. Then you have other citizen generals, guys like Benjamin Butler, who uh, kind of a spotty reputation. But what about a guy like Jacob Cox, who commissions into the army as a volunteer soldier, gets... I mean, he rises all the way through the ranks. He's a major general by the end of 1862 at uh, Antietam. And then because there's a surplus of major generals in the army, they go, well, you know, Jacob Cox, it's really, it's been nice. But we don't really need that service right now. You can go back to being a brigadier general and they revert his rank back. But this is when he goes home and he fights in the Eastern Theater, which I think is one of the things that sets him aside from a bunch of the people that fight here, aside from... Thomas Ruger and Nathan Kimball, uh, is that Cox fights in the East. He fights against all the big names. He's he's at uh, he fights with Lee, and then he's at Antietam, and giant Civil War junkie. You know, you go to all the battlefields out east, and you learn about places like Burnside's Bridge at, at Antietam. It's not Burnside's Bridge. It's really it should be called Jacob Cox's Bridge because mm-hmm. he's in command of the Ninth Corps of the Army of Potomac. Burnside's overseeing the rest of the army, or that wing, and then yeah. Cox is in direct <clears throat> command. Then after that, he's kind of reverted back to Brigadier General, and Burnside and Cox both go back to Ohio with this mindset, build another army corps. And the 23rd Corps, the Army of the Ohio, is built by those two men, really. Burnside then ships out east to go to Knoxville, and then Cox is left there. He takes command of a division, and who shows up but John Schofield. And he's in command of the Army of the Ohio now. And together, Schofield and Cox will fight through the Atlanta campaign. Cox actually probably shows off a little bit. Yeah, I agree. I, I think he's significantly better in terms of being a tactical commander. For a guy that never went to school, mm-hmm. never learned how to be a soldier, he learns very quickly. And he's very good at it. Very. And he's adaptable. Yep. It's one of his great gifts is that Schofield... I won't say that he's inflexible, but I'll say that when he has a plan, he does not want to divert from the plan. Mm-hmm. Cox is very good at being on the fly, saying, okay, the flank of the Confederate Army is right there. If I just swing my division around, I'll be on their flank. Yeah. Schofield calculated risk assessment we would think of today. Mm-hmm. Not Jacob Cox. Not to the extent that Schofield is. So he comes out of the, I think, out of the Atlanta campaign. And Cox, is, he's shy. also not... He's not reckless. Like when no. you think of that trying to, you think of outflanking them, you think of being reckless in it, mm-hmm. but he's very strategic in mm-hmm. what he is attempting. Mm-hmm. And then he comes out of the Atlanta campaign, I, I would think smelling like roses. Schofield goes uh, back north. He's on a, I would argue, a political mission. Yep. Cox gets command of the Corps for the time being, and it's actually. Sherman that goes to Jacob Cox and starts to talk about this idea of taking the army south out of Atlanta down to Nashville or down, excuse me, down to Savannah. And also Sherman hated politicians, but he respects Jacob Cox, which is so strange because he, he does not like John Logan, but he understands that Logan's one of his best corps commanders. Mm -hmm. But then when it comes time to take the army south, he sends Logan up out of the army. He gets him away because what's a politician do? They stop. They give speeches. Mm-hmm. They talk to newspaper writers. 
So he's afraid that as he's moving from Atlanta to Savannah, there's going to be Logan with an entire press corps. Well, you know, today we marched right through uh, south of Atlanta, and now we're marching through the farms and, and sell that to the good friends and folks back home. Sherman doesn't want that. He wants to move in secrecy. So you get rid of the politicians. So it's really fascinating that he almost kind of puts his little arm around around Cox. <laughs> He's my friend. He's doing okay. And if you can't tell, because there's no visual aid yeah. for this, I have my arm around my imaginary friend Jacob Cox. Right? Let my laughter know the joke is landing. Perfect. Perfect. And I don't sometimes know. they don't. <laughs> You're not wrong. Okay. So Sherman talks to Cox about taking the troops down to the south, and Cox is advocating, let the 23rd Corps go south. Let the 23rd Corps go south. Let us fight. Let us go with you, and then Schofield shows back up. He takes command again, and maybe it's Sherman's dislike of Schofield, if there is any animosity there. Or maybe it's Schofield saying, I I think the better mission, the better assignment would be for us to go to Nashville. Schofield takes the 23rd Corps north, and then this is where Jacob Cox, I think, cements himself as a soldier. Yep. This is where his legacy is born. Tennessee campaign. Yep. Certainly. So they start moving. The 23rd Corps starts to move north, and they're given the assignment, essentially. Sherman is going to send General George Thomas to Nashville. Thomas is going to start to fortify Nashville. But to delay the advance of the Confederate Army under John Bell Hood. And real quick, just to... Talk about Nashville's importance, and a lot of people don't realize this, because today, when you visit Nashville, it's not a Civil War site. It's Broadway. It's, it's Broadway. It's bars. It's smells like vomit. It smells it smells like human functions have been. <laughs> yes, it just smells. Let's say it smells bad. And you're from you're from New Orleans. You know Bourbon Street. Oh yeah, it smells worse. Yeah, so there we go. Somehow it <laughs> smells worse than Bourbon Street. Yeah, and a lot of people don't realize Nashville was one of the most one of the largest and most fortified southern cities. And really... It, it's, I think it's only second to Washington, To Washington, D.C. It is incredibly important. It's a medical city. It is right there on the Cum- got, Cumberland River. It's it, got cannon foundries. It's got sword manufacturers. It's got arms and equipment stockpiled yeah. there. Because if you're going to bring equipment to the armies of the federal, the federal armies in the West, it has to come through Nashville or through Chattanooga. Well, Hood's naturally not going to attack Chattanooga because... It's already been attempted. (laughs) Been there, done Done that, got the t-shirt twice. (laughs) Not going to do it again. Yep. It's it's the old George Bush quote. Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on the other guy. Well, I can't get fooled again. Yep. That's the philosophy behind attacking Chattanooga now is, no, 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 no. We'll go to Nashville. And Nashville, like you you said, is so incredibly important. And it falls in February of sixty two. So for first Confederate capital yeah, to fall. For most of the war, it's federally occupied. It and for the Confederates to get Nashville be a huge morale boost. Yeah. It, if the pendulum was all the way on the left, it swings it back to the right. Yeah. And so Hood starts moving north, and the only thing really standing between him and let's call it eight thousand men in Nashville and his thirty three thousand man army. And we're both bad at math. And Uh, 30,000 against eight. Not great. Not great odds. Yeah. Uh, 28,000 men of the 23rd Corps of the Army of the Ohio and the 4th Corps of the Army of the Cumberland are sent to slow down Hood's advance on Nashville. Who takes command of those two combined corps but Schofield, which means that Cox now kind of has the pseudo-command of the Mm -hmm. 23rd Corps again. 
So not only is he a division commander, he's also got to balance the other two divisions of the Corps. They march into Tennessee, and then they'll collide at Pulaski. That's where Schofield sets up this, I think it's a really great position, having walked the ground myself, right there along the Pigeon Rouge Creek. It's just beautiful, flat, open land. And all Schofield's doing is waiting, is looking, yep. feeling the situation. Then Hood starts moving. They both start to run towards Columbia. And who's the first federal soldiers to arrive in Columbia but Jacob Cox's corps? They show up. They fortify. Forrest hits them, throws back Forrest, which I think is always great to mention that. Nathan Bedford Forrest in this campaign, for all the people that run around, oh, he's so great, oh, he's so fabulous. Yeah, well, not, 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 not during the Tennessee campaign. Yeah, and I think during the Tennessee campaign, not to go on a forest bunny trail, but whenever that name comes up, I always have this conversation with people. He's been bounced around the state of Tennessee like a ping pong ball, back and yeah. forth and back and forth. For a he month. Is, he is just exhausted. He's sick. His men are tired. And then they come off of this West Tennessee campaign, mm-hmm. and on November the 14th, he gets orders, well, you've got to go to the Army of Tennessee now. Yeah. <laughs> what? Panting. Yep. Panting begins. And then he's back on campaign again, and he's the one that Schofield's feeling for. Mm-hmm. And as Forrest is kind of moving east and west across the bottom portion of the state, then Schofield moves to Columbia. And now it's this collision course to Columbia. Forrest gets there. Cox throws him back. And then it's this kind of campaign back and forth. And then as John Schofield is carrying out the escape at Spring Hill on the 29th, it's Thomas Ruger's lead division of the 23rd Corps that goes it's Jacob Cox, right? I would love to know what is going through Ruger's mind. Are you sure? They're very close. Yeah, he's like, (laughs) you want me to do what? Yeah, I don't think that there's, I I think there's a hesitation, certainly. But then they start moving. They get right by. And then the morning comes, Franklin is And that's one of the things that people don't understand is how did the Federal Army move past the Confederates in Spring Hill. We can do an entire episode on Spring Hill. We can, and you should also go to Ripa Villa and learn all about it, because you can stand in the field where William Bate is encamped, and you can see the road. You have a sick obsession with William Bate. I know. Yeah. I know. I just had to work him into a Cox episode. You get the two together. <laughs> now we have to do a George Wagner episode. So the Federal Army gets to Franklin, can't get across the Harper River, yep. starts to set up their bridges, starts to get things ready, and... Schofield's going to oversee the bridge crossing, mm-hmm. which means he leaves the defense of the town to Jacob Cox, and we all know how that turns out. Jacob Cox constructs this perimeter on the south edge of town, brilliantly places artillery, puts the men in all the right spots. Battle goes on. Cox, and the whole time, they're just buying time, right? Yeah. Because they're just, they don't the think the Confederates are going to show they're, up. They're going to be gone by 6 o'clock. Yep. And then the fight comes. Jacob Cox's headquarters is at the Carter House, visit the Carter House, and then they get to Nashville. Successfully, Confederate armies defeated here at Franklin. Then they pursue him onto Nashville. It's here, though, that Jacob Cox cements himself as one of the great volunteer soldiers. His defense of Franklin is brilliant. There's that great account uh, where he's riding back and forth on the line. The lead's flying. The shells are exploding. And his horse just kind of locks up, freezes up, spooks. He jumps off the horse, grabs it by the reins, pets its nose, and walks along the entire line with the horse intel, gets back on the horse and rides back over to the other side of the line. Just that kind of what uh, Shelby Foote said in the, the the Civil War series by Ken Burns that Ulysses S. Grant had the four in the morning courage. Mm-hmm. So did Jacob Cox. Yeah. Absolutely. And then he manages then to 
facilitate the escape of the Federal Army across the Harpeth. They get to Nashville. And then the war really drags on until April. He goes back home, though, early before the campaigns are really Mm -hmm. over. His 23rd Corps with Schofield and everybody goes out east towards North Carolina. They'll fight there. But Jacob Cox just got elected governor in the state of Ohio. Yep. So he goes back home. And the war ends. And I think there's so many great pictures. One of my favorite pictures that I've ever seen of Jacob Cox is in his full uniform at the end of the war. And he's wearing a black mourning band. President Lincoln had just been killed. And from that point forward, Cox emerges then in the post-war period as this advocate of reconstruction, this advocate of, of, of as you said earlier, Johnson's administration's uh, terms on, on, on reconstruction. But then Johnson's out in 1868, Grant wins. And Jacob Cox is uh, selected, appointed. Yeah, he's uh, appointed. appointed Secretary of the Interior. Uh, and he just takes that position like that. He yeah. accepts it immediately from Grant. And uh, ends up working quite a bit with Native American people and the expansion into the West. Mm -hmm. And he's doing a lot of work with that. So to pitch another book, if you're looking for something to understand, the Native American Wars that lasted about four decades, uh, The Earth is Weeping is a great book on the Native American Wars. And once again, if you use uh, promo code DISPATCH, you get $2 shipping on that. And it talks about Jacob Cox in it. I think this is a great place to take a break, and we'll come back to Jacob Cox in his final years. Available now in the Battle of Franklin Trust bookstore, James McPherson's The War That Forged a Nation, Why the Civil War Still Matters. Drawing upon a lifetime of engagement with the Civil War, James McPherson considers why the conflict remains so deeply embedded within our national consciousness, racial inequality, and the legacy of slavery, the conflict between North and South debates over state sovereignty and the role of government in social change. These issues, McPherson shows, are salient and controversial today as they were more than a century and a half ago. As debates continue about whether to remove monuments to the Confederacy, symbols of white supremacy to some, to others memorials to a proud heritage, it has become clear that the scars left by the war may never disappear. This illuminating volume offers a succinct summation of the Civil War, its causes, and its enduring effects. James McPherson is the Professor Emeritus of United States History at Princeton University. He is the author of many books on the Civil War, including Battle Cry of Freedom, which was awarded the Pulitzer Prize for History. McPherson's book and so many more are available at store.boft.org, and if you use the promo code DISPATCH, you'll receive $2 flat rate shipping. Perfect. Back to Jacob Cox. Back to Jacob Cox. Back to Jacob Cox. What else is there to say about Jacob Cox? Then? Because we, you know, we've seen him through the war. He's the Secretary of the Interior. Of course, he resigns that position, and then he's nominated, or he's in the process of being nominated to run against Grant. We've talked about how he kind of gets axed from that. Yep. Then he goes back, becomes the, the, is it the president or he's the chancellor or whatever they call him at Oberlin College? President. And president. There's several different universities that wanted him as president, mm-hmm. but he does end up going back to Oberlin, which is kind of where he went to school. So I think there's mm-hmm. a part of him that's like, yeah, this is my old stomping grounds. In a way. And Oberlin, before the war, is this kind of abolitionist mecca. Yes. Uh, black and white students together. And then at the same time, it's one of the first abolitionist centric schools in the entire country and then he's there he comes back after the war 
becomes the president there. I think that's where he, he really does some of his, I don't know if we could call it his best work, but it's there that he kind of transitions out of the role of soldier and statesman to somebody that I think is recognizing his own mortality. Yep. And that's when he starts to write. That's when he becomes a scientist. That's when he gets really into... And we don't mean he just starts to write. He becomes a Civil War historian. Yeah. Like, and some of his books, uh, uh, the March to the Sea, the Franklin, or the Nashville Atlanta campaign, Atlanta Nashville campaign. What's the name oh, of the book? Oh, the March to the Sea. His, March to the Sea. That's his history of the Atlanta campaign. Yeah, which is still a credible source today. Yeah. He even writes one just on Atlanta itself, the Atlanta campaign. So he's got one book on that. He's got a March to the Sea, the story of the Savannah and Nashville campaign. He's got his own two volumes of memoirs that he writes. Yep. And I think one of my one of my favorite kind of bonus Jacob Cox stories is post-war, he's meeting with some of his old commanders. And I think it's Jack Casement he's meeting with. Mm-hmm. And um, during it, Casement always liked to cuss around Jacob Cox because it made him blush and uncomfortable <laughs> because Cox was such a teetotaler. Is that teetotaler? That just means he didn't drink. He's just super oh. pious. Yeah, super pious. There we go. He's just extremely pious, and Jack Casement just had fun with it. So, kind of feels like me around some of his stuff. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Which is another moment where Jacob Cox is super relatable. Yeah. Uh, or, or where at least people around him are super relatable. Um, but then you've got, you've got that kind of post-war, I guess, recognition that he had been part of something that was so monumental, something that was so important. Why not record a history of it? And then he leaves us in 1897 with one of, I think, the greatest gifts that he could give to a historian, which is an incredibly thoroughly researched account of the battle. Mm-hmm. It's not just his opinions. When you said he talked with his other commanders, he was getting their reports. He was getting their personal statements. He was talking to individual soldiers, getting their accounts, talking to friends, talking to even his adversaries to get their opinions on what happened. And then he writes it all out and gives you this incredible primary source that is also still, I think it's one of the best research accounts of the battle that exists. Yes, easily. Bar none. And then he dies in 1900. And after all of this, he's accomplished. And I don't even think there's a Jacob Cox monument. No. Maybe in Ohio. Yeah. like a governor. Or maybe there's a portrait hang somewhere. But I don't think that there's a statue to him anywhere. Something for a listener to go out and find and show us how we're wrong. Yes, if you find one, send an email to joseph at boff.org and just say you were wrong. I hear I'm wrong all the time. <laughs> it doesn't even hurt anymore. I get told no a lot. It's all good. Well, Bill, I think this has been a pretty well-rounded discussion of Jacob Cox. And one of the things, I guess maybe the closing remarks on Jacob Cox, why isn't a guy like him remembered? I think it's simply the same reason we're both drawn to him. He's ordinary. Just too ordinary He's to be memorable. He's just too ordinary. He doesn't have that he doesn't have that godlike complex. He doesn't look like the uh, Stonewall Jackson Superman statue. Yeah, that's fair. He he is He's just normal and I think that's what is so special about him. In mm-hmm. in the Civil War there are so many bigger than life figures like mm-hmm. we've already talked about in this podcast but Forrest, Forrest Grant, Grant Sherman, Sherman Phil uh, Sheridan Stonewall Jackson yeah. um, 
all the big names, everybody yeah. that you've heard of, everybody that you've seen a statue of before, but then then there's the ordinary men that fought. There's the ordinary men that struggled, that suffered, and that did incredibly amazing things and have through I think the distortion of memory been forgotten. Yep. Wouldn't be an episode if I didn't say memory at least once. <laughs> We we did have an entire memory section for Joseph at one point in the gift shop. Oh, uh, so just a reminder for the Jacob Cox books, we've got Citizen General by Gene Schmiel. We've got his memoirs. We've also got his 1897 monograph. All of those are available through the Battle of Franklin uh, Trust website, through our online store. Which is uh, store.boff.org. Bill will be the man that receives all of your purchases and... If you use the discount code DISPATCH, you'll get $2 off on shipping, which, how can you beat the deal? Not $2 off, $2 shipping, even better. Oh, I misunderstood. So you get $2 shipping. $2 Flat $2 shipping. It. Okay, yep. you see, this is the problem with not talking these things through beforehand, is I sound like an idiot. <laughs> or I sound like an idiot, because maybe I'm just making it up on the fly, so who knows. So use the discount code DISPATCH, and you get $2 shipping on it if you buy all four books. $2 shipping. $2 shipping. It doesn't get better. Than it that. does not. Thanks for listening, folks. We'll catch you next time. Have a good one.